Today we begin studying the final chapter of the letter of James. So turn with me to James chapter 5 and we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 6. James 5, 1 through 6. And as you get there, what is the end goal? What is the goal of this life? For many within our culture, within our society, and perhaps we must admit sometimes we believe it too, that the goal seems to be amass as much stuff as you can, uh, amass as much money as you can. The goal is to retire with a lot of money in your bank account so you can live the rest of your days however you want, that you can spend them however you want, you can take trips, you can do whatever it is that you desire with the time that you have left we might phrase it a little bit differently and say that the goal is treasure that that is what we seek as a culture we're seeking treasure we are looking for treasure and again we may not call it that that seems like a strange way to describe what we're talking about uh we may not consider that that's what we're doing when we strive to fill up our houses full of stuff, uh, but really that's what the marketers are trying to make us do, right? Desire treasure, seek treasure, get treasure. When we begin to realize that, when we begin to have a concept and an understanding of what our society is moving towards, and understand that that is exactly what our society is moving towards, our, our economy is one based on people buying stuff. And if people stop buying stuff, if people saw through the uh, the kind of worthlessness of it, then we would collapse as a country, right? What what would this country end up? We seek treasure. When we begin to realize that, when we study what the Bible has to say about treasure, earthly and heavenly, we realize we have a choice to make. We have a choice before us. The first is we can go on amassing for ourselves the treasures of this earth. We can go on in the ways of the world, and we have our reward. Or we can do the uncomfortable thing and amass for ourselves heavenly treasures. We can do that which Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, 19-21, Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And listen, this is, this is the essential part here of what Jesus is saying. Listen to this. This is the conclusion. Why should we care where our treasure is? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The treasures here are temporary. The treasures to come are eternal. And Jesus says, where our treasure is, what we treasure and where we keep it, that's where our heart is. That's where we are, right? That's what we mean by heart. Heart is all that motivates us. Heart is, heart is who, we, who we really are, right? It's not the organ pumping our blood. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's talking about all who we are. Where our treasure is, that's where we are. And so we will either be on the earth with temporary treasures, 
or will be in the heavenly, heavenly places with eternal treasures. James likewise instructs us today. This intersects with our passage today because he instructs believers that those who store up treasures in this life, listen to this, those who store up treasures in this life are storing up misery in the next. Those who store up treasures in this life are storing up misery in the next. Let's see that in our passage in our scripture today out of James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. And this is the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Remember James' purpose in writing this letter is to instruct and exhort the church. He's writing Uh, predominantly to Christians, although we'll see uh, that he is addressing non-Christians really here. Um, But but he wants the church to stand steadfast in the midst of the various trials of life, right? There are various kinds of trials, and we need wisdom to face them. So what is that wisdom? Uh, He wants them to be wise because it is through wisdom and through the, the application of wisdom, the standing fast in the midst of trials that they will receive the crown of life that they will receive eternal life and in the passages prior to ours today right in in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 4 james was instructing there the christian merchants in the church who had this arrogant and haughty attitude that said you know we're going to go and we're going to make money we're going to make profit we're going to do this And it's up to us and we can do it. Which was arrogance because it didn't acknowledge the sovereign, uh, the sovereign power of the Lord God. Right? Instead, they ought to say, in verse 15 of chapter 4, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do, we will live and do this or that. Right? If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That that should be the attitude of the Christian merchants, that their life is dependent upon God and their ability to make a profit. Their plans are dependent on the Lord God. Well, today in our passage, uh, James moves from speaking and addressing the Christian merchants uh, to addressing the rich non-believer. And we'll see why that is. But that's important for us. That's an important uh, background for us that he is not here addressing the church directly but indirectly right because this is a letter to the church so he's indirectly addressing the church but he is targeting those uh, who are rich non-christian and landowners and again that's we see that because they have fields right they own land and we would do well to remember right that part of the background to this letter is that uh, that the church is predominantly filled with the impoverished, with the poor. 
during this time. There's poverty within the church. The average person is a poor person. The rich are increasingly so. They keep amassing for themselves more and more wealth, more and more land. They keep expanding their land holdings and business empires. But not only that, they prosecute and persecute the church. They prosecute and persecute the poor. And we could look back at James 2 and see how that is the case. James 2, 6 through 7. If you want to go look at that later, you can read back through that. But what I want us to see first in verses 1 through 3 is the miseries of mammon. The miseries of mammon. And James says, he writes here, right? Come now. Listen here. And he says, you rich. Right? He's addressing a different audience. In the last passage, he said, come now, you who say. Now he says, come now, you rich. He's directing his words to the wealthy. And as we'll see again, that these are non-Christian. These are rich non-believers. And how do we know that they're non-believers? Well, look at what he says to them. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And this language here is the language of the prophets. And indeed, if you were to go back and trace the Greek, the word, like for instance, that word howl there uh, in the Greek, uh, and you look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. There's your fun fact for the day. You can take that with you, put it in your pocket, uh, carry it with you. But, but in the Greek Old Testament, when we see this word howl, it is used in the prophets. And it's almost always used to, to speak of the judgment of God upon people. And so that's, that's the context to this, right? So he is saying to these rich, and how do we know they're non-believers? Because they're to weep and howl. They are to, to cry out for the judgment that is coming upon them, for the miseries that are coming upon them. And again, well, as we go through, we see this again and again, that this is not a, this is not a matter of temporary earthly judgment. This is a matter of eternal judgment. So these are non-believers. This is about divine eternal judgment. But there is an earthly component to that, right? Uh, it's not unlike what Jesus proclaims in Luke 6, 24 to 25. Luke 6, 24 to 25 says, Jesus speaking, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So woe, right? Weep, mourn. These aren't these aren't trite words, are they? Right? This isn't a, a, an expression of light vanity. This is an expression of utter dejection, right? This is an expression of the lowest possible, the worst possible outcome. Jesus says, "Woe to the rich, for you have received your consolation." Right, you have received your comfort. You want comfort? You've got it. And that's all you're ever going to get. You're going to have it for 70 and, or maybe by uh, reason of strength, 80 years. That's your comfort. And after that, misery. Woe. Right? James writes, Woe to the rich, for misery is coming. 
Uh, Douglas Moon commenting on this passage, right? Either believers themselves are miserable because of their sin, or they will be made miserable by God for that sin. Do you understand that 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 is true of every person? Either you will weep and mourn over your sin, right? What what James talks and and calls us to, uh, James 4, verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Right? Either we will weep over our sin now or hereafter we will weep in the miseries of eternal judgment over our sin. Right? God will make us weep if we choose not to. The miseries for the rich are nothing less, right? What, what James is saying here, the miseries that are coming upon you is the eternal judgment of God. The miseries for the rich are nothing, nothing less than the judgment of God. But we have to ask ourselves two questions. And the first question will take us a little bit of time to go through. So as we go along, you may think he forgot to answer the, ask the second question and answer it. Uh, but no, we will get there. But the first question is, who are the rich exactly? Who are the rich exactly? And the second question is, why are the rich so judged? And the second question will be easier to answer once we understand the first question. But who are the rich exactly? Who is it that James is describing? Right? Because who is the rich? Uh, and, and we need to understand that. As we come to the scriptures, we often find, right, if you look up this term, the rich, and you kind of examine the context to it, you'll find that the rich are often synonymous with the unrighteous. So we could maybe put a little equal sign up there, right? Do a little uh, bit of algebraic homework here. I know the, the kids love that, right? Rich equals unrighteous. So we could say the rich equals the unrighteous. And therein lies our clue. Who are the rich? These are those who have and do with their wealth what they want to. These unrighteous rich are those that hoard up wealth for their own ends and are not generous toward God, toward his people, or toward others, those in need. Remember the parable of Jesus that we looked at last week in Luke 12. Luke 12, 15 through 21. Luke 12, 15 through 21. And he said to him, this is Jesus speaking, and he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And let me just stop there and say, does that what our culture is that what our culture says? Is that the message of our culture that one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions? No, quite the opposite, right? Your life, the measure of your life is the measure of your possessions. That's that's what our culture says. Um I sometimes take online internet surveys cuz you get points and then you get gift cards and I won't go into all that, but uh, but every once in a while, there'll be like a brand survey. So it'll be a survey about a brand. And they'll ask some sort of question like, um, just a general question of, like, when you buy brands, do you buy brands because they make you look better in other people's eyes? And they don't phrase it just like that, right? They use a little bit more uh, subtler language, but that's the question they're really asking, right? Do the brands you buy reflect who you are? 
And I would just ask that question of you. Do, do the brands you buy reflect who you are? Do you have to buy the best brand because that says that you're a better person than the person who buys the store brand? The store brand? And just point, point that out there. Because the message of our culture is uh, life consists in the abundance of possessions. Uh, but Jesus says, right, take care, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of, of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Come on, relax. Eat, drink, be merry. Right? Pause, pause there. Enjoy life. Retire, retire while it's still good. Keep going. Scripture continues. But God said to him, fool, this, your, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus says that life is not about our possessions. Life is about being rich toward God. Now, two things. The first is that we in the West have abundance. You, and I mean, yes, you, really have to stop and consider what James and the scripture are saying. You may not think yourself wealthy. You may have abundance. Uh, you, you do have abundance. You may be living from paycheck to paycheck, but that doesn't mean you don't have abundance. And why do I say that? Just because you're unwise with your wealth, right? Some people are truly barely scraping it by. But some people are barely scraping it by because they're unwise with their wealth. They are bad stewards. They pay $300 for television and internet service that they don't need. Right? And I'll tell you that. You don't need it. You can't live without it. Somehow, throughout the very many millennia of, of humanity, manage to get through life without TV service. I don't know how they did it. Now, actually, I think back and I don't know how they did without air conditioning, but maybe I'm just weak, right? Weak and used to. But, right, you can't say that you don't have abundance just because you misuse your riches. So we in the West have abundance. Uh, the, I always remark about the fact that you can go to the grocery store and get exotic fruits and vegetables that people in centuries past had never even heard of. We have abundance, right? There are some countries where that is not true. You go into the grocery store and you're lucky to see a can on the shelf, right? And we get a little upset when like our favorite brand of X food is not missing, right? We have abundance. In the West, we have abundance. The, the second thing is God doesn't need our riches, right? So when Jesus says, that you've stored up treasure for yourself and you haven't been rich towards God, does God need our riches? Does he need our money? Does he need our work output, our productivity? Is he in want? 
Now, here's a fundamental uh, part of the nature of God. God needs nothing. Nothing. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need this creation. You don't add anything to God. And you can't take anything away from God. Right? That's fundamental to the nature of God. God is who God is always. Right? That's why he is I am. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your riches. As the scripture says, right? What's the classic line? He owns cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your riches. But God gives us riches that we might bless others with it. That's fundamental. We have to understand that. Go back to the problem. Go back to the parable. And what is the problem with the rich man? Right? What does he say? When he has excess, when he has surplus, when he has abundance, he says, soul, why stress out about it? Relax. Relax, rest, eat, drink, be merry. Enjoy the bounty that has been hard earned. Or as James writes in a few verses down, James 5, first part of verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. That's the problem with the man, the rich man in the parable. Right? He sought luxury and self-indulgence. This is what James is actually accusing the rich of in our passage. Right? Look at verses 2 through 3. And it may be a strange way, it's a strange way perhaps to put it, but this is what James is saying, right? Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. What is James saying here? He says, your riches, your earthly treasures, what happens to them? They decay. They corrode. They rot. Everything about it fails because they're temporary. And now we may have to ask, because it says they're your gold and silver. The ESV says they're corroded. Some other translations uh, use the word rust. Gold and silver don't rust, right, typically. But perhaps the reason he uses this is because gold and silver weren't often pure. So they would have impurities in them. Things like iron, which does rust. Right? So, so in the one sense, gold and silver looks to be this pure and great thing, but the rust tells us something important about it. It's not pure. It's in fact corrupted. It's tainted. It's corroded. And when he uses these words rotted, are moth-eaten, corroded, that these are all in the perfect tense, meaning that there's a sureness to the end of these riches because earthly treasures are always this, temporary, transitory, unreliable. But not to lose track. Why is this a problem? What is the problem? The problem is this, especially given the context of, in which James is writing. But guess what? The context is saying same today, still true today. There are many within the body of Christ, many within the church that are in lack, 
that are in desperate need and the rich, the wealthy build bigger barns. And listen, we don't want to hear this because it cuts against our selfishness, but God gives us wealth for the benefit of others. And I'll say that again, because our inclination there is just to put our fingers in our ears, to stop them up, to get distracted and to look away. But let me say this again. God gives us wealth for the benefit of others. Now, I know what you're going to say. Dale, you're making that up. That's just something those preachers say. Um, And actually, I probably, well, maybe not be in the minority, but there are certainly enough preachers out there or so-called preachers on TV that will be the first to tell you, God wants you to build bigger barns. He, he has blessings in store for you, treasure in store for you, uh, and make sure you send in your $1,000 check and you'll get $10,000 back, right? But you might say, Dale, you're making yourself up. God gives me wealth so that I can enjoy it. He's blessed me so I can enjoy those blessings. And again, that's certainly true if you believe the prosperity gospel. If you believe the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, God gives you blessings so you can enjoy them. But that's not the truth. Turn your attention to the scripture. Don't believe me. Right? I'll go ahead and say that. Never just believe me. See what the scripture says. Believe the word of God. 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. And again, I go back to what I said. That we who are in the West have an abundance. We who are in the West are rich. That's you. So Paul here is talking about you. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And you know what? I might just go ahead and read that again because I think that it says it better than I ever could. Listen to the word of God here. This is for you. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You're to be rich in good works, not rich in earthly treasures. God gives to you for the benefit of others. See, what James is writing about the rich doing here is the opposite of what Paul writes to Timothy to instruct the rich to do, right? What James is talking about is that these rich have stored, they've stockpiled, they've put back and grown and build bigger barns to store their stuff. 
And Timothy says, uh, Paul writes to Timothy to instruct the rich to give. Don't build the bigger barn. Find who needs what the excess that you have. Here the rich have stored up for themselves treasures on earth. And as it says here, right, you have laid up treasure in the last days. And guess what? It's going to be an evidence against you. It's going to eat your flesh like fire. It's going to be proved to be what it is. Temporary, transitory, and you have had your consolation now. Don't think you'll get any in heaven. Don't think you'll get any in the afterlife, in eternal life. But Paul writes that in doing good with our wealth and being generous and ready to share, we are storing up heavenly treasures, which is truly life. Life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. Life consists in a good foundation, good works. And again, the scripture is clear about the problem of riches. Uh, just before what I just read there in 1 Timothy 6 and verses 9 to 10, 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Right? It is an evil thing to desire riches. It is an evil thing because through that, many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It is through the love of money that we end up like the seed sown among the thorns. If you remember that parable of Jesus, I'll give you just that section out of Mark 4, verses 18 through 19. Mark 4, 18 through 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. We may think that won't happen to me. I can desire riches and avoid that outcome. You can stand on top of a campfire and you may not get burned. But what's the likelihood of that? Right? Do, do, we, do we understand this? And, and understand that I have, I've, I have friends who I have seen this borne out in their life. They would rather leave Jesus, right? Not have Jesus, not have eternal life because the pleasures of this life, because of the deceitfulness of riches, is of greater desire to them than Jesus ever is. And that, that makes me weep. Because what will happen on the day of judgment when they stand before God, their riches will be an evidence against them, a witness against them. And what will they have for all that they have? When they stand before God, they're not going to bring forward a truckload of gold bricks and say, here you go, God, I brought this for you. Now let me into heaven. The gold will be rusted. 
What is the end of those who fail to hear the word and obey it? What, what, what is the end of such a person? Miseries. Woe, weep, mourn. The miseries for the rich are nothing less than the judgment of God. And I did say that there are two questions that I had to ask about that, right? The first is, who exactly are the rich? Well, the rich are those who use wealth for selfish, sinful purposes. That's the context here to James. And we can't, we have to be very careful, brothers and sisters, because it may be us. We really have to stop and ask ourselves if it is us. Let's not just say, well, the rich are someone else. Ask yourself, am I the rich person? Am I the one building bigger barns? Am I the one trying and seeking my own way to use the wealth for my own selfish ends? And understand, I understand. Believe me, I understand. That's an uncomfortable question to ask. But Christian, you don't have a choice but to ask it. Faithfulness to your Savior demands you ask it. But the second question is, why are the rich so judged? Why does God judge the rich? Well, it should be more evident now, right? It should be evident from the description of who the rich are. Why is it that God judges the rich? Because they put their faith in earthly treasure and not in God, right? They fear earthly treasure, not God. They worship earthly treasure, not God. They amass their wealth for their own selfish purposes, Right? They serve mammon. And that's a, a, a god, a false god of wealth. Right? What does Jesus say about two masters? You can't have two masters. Either love one and hate the other, or hate one and love the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or wealth, money. And more than that, as we see in the coming verses, they practice rank unrighteousness. So let's look at that next in verse 4. The mourning of the mowers. The mourning of the mowers. That is the the weeping of the mowers, not the uh, sun is rising of the mowers. Right. The mourning of the mowers. Behold, look, see this. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, or Lord of Sabaoth. Behold, look, and understand, even if no one else sees it, the Lord God sees it. Behold, look, the Lord God hears the cries against the unrighteous rich. And in this instance, what what James is accusing the rich of, right, the, the problem is, is that they withhold and defraud their workers. And depending on your translation, you might see they held them back by fraud or they withhold. Uh, and that's because there's a manuscript difference and, and we're not entirely certain what is the original word there. But it doesn't really matter because both words have the same result, right? There's some kind of withholding. Uh, there's some kind of defrauding of the workers, They hire workers to harvest their fields, but then say, uh, I'll pay you later. I'll get you on the flip side, right? And we aren't given the reason why they might do that. Why do they hold back the wages? We don't really know. We don't know exactly how they might defraud them, but we can think of some ways, right? How, why or how might they do this? 
Um, maybe it's a good way just to make sure that the worker comes back to their field the next day. Right? In a in competitive market, you need to, to keep your laborers, make sure they don't go to the next guy's field. So if you hold back their wages, right, they have to come back to you. They need to be paid. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's a good way to turn some quick interest. If you can keep the wages, uh, their wages with the, the, the lenders, right, for as long as possible, maybe they can make some quick interest. Uh, maybe they can move some investments and, and do some extra things here. Or maybe, right, how do they defraud them? Um, maybe they can nickel and dime them for everything they need in the day. Uh, oh, you need a glass of water? I'll be happy to sell you one, right? I'll just take it out of your wages. Don't worry. Or here's a real capitalistic reason, right? The less you pay out, guess what? The more you get to keep, right? The more you get. The evil of what these rich are doing is in direct violation of the law of God, though. Uh, Leviticus 19.13 says, Leviticus 19.13, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Deuteronomy 24.15, Deuteronomy 24.15, You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And see, Deuteronomy there tells us a little bit more explicitly uh, what is the reason. Why do you pay the worker on the same day? Because it's the difference between him being able to eat that night or not. He's poor. He counts on it. He can't feed his family if you don't give him money. It could be their very life. In the next verse in, in uh, James, in, in verse 6, kind of makes more explicit there, uh, makes that issue more clear. But here we see the scripture says that those you hold back, those who you have defrauded, they cry out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts or Lord Sabaoth. This is the Lord of armies, right? That's what it means by hosts, the Lord of armies. And what are the armies of the Lord? Innumerable angels. And if we need any evidence of what those angels can do, go back and read the Old Testament and you'll see stories of how mighty armies fall and the Israelites do nothing. They just go and collect the spoil, right? They go and collect the, the leftovers, but God, who commands armies of angels, will send forth his messengers to bring about justice. That's the point of what James is making, right? Your, the cries of the righteous are going up to God against the unrighteous and don't think that God will do nothing. You may have your riches an extra day, but they will cost you your life. And this intersects for us on two points, at least two points. The first is, if you cry out about injustice, know that God hears you. If you cry out about unjust wages, know that God hears you. If you cry out about an unrighteous manager, he listens. Or as James will say in uh, 
verse 7 of our chapter, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. God is coming and will establish justice throughout all the earth. Believe that, brothers and sisters in Christ. Believe in the holy, righteous wrath of God. Trust in Him. He will make right what is now set wrong. And the second thing, the second intersection for us is that if you are a business owner or if you are in control of setting the wages of others, you should tremble before God. And why do I say that? Because if you're unjust in your ways, in the setting of wages and the payment of your workers, you will find God a fierce judge. Malachi 3.5 tells us, Malachi 3.5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And listen to this. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God will be a swift witness. He'll say, I have seen all that you have done. Nobody else may have known what you have been doing, but I've seen it. We must understand that the Bible is not against the making of wealth, right? So, so this is not an anti-capitalistic grant. Although perhaps we should be a little more wary of capitalism than we perhaps are as Christians, right? This is not, Bible doesn't say don't make wealth. And the Bible doesn't say it's wrong to have wealth. But it's what we do with it that matters. It's what we do with it that matters. How you manage your wealth matters. What you really treasure matters you can have wealth and not treasure it but understand as paul says right it it's hard it's difficult to have wealth and we'll see jesus says likewise in a little bit but as james is addressing right the rich he says in essence they have acted as murderers and let's see that next the murder of the moral in verses 5 and 6, the murder of the moral. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Right? What may have been hinted at before is now made explicit here. Right? That the rich have lived in luxury and in self-indulgence. And again, if we needed any more evidence that James is as much addressing his culture as he is our culture, here it is. Right? We are a culture of self-indulgence. We live for comfort. We want luxury, right? Those are the words we like to use about everything, right? It's luxurious. Oh, that cappuccino was just luxurious, right? We even use it about things that seemingly shouldn't have luxury to it, right? But but this is this is what we are. This is who we are. This is what we uh, seek after. There's a TV show that kind of epitomizes this idea in the phrase, treat yourself, right? Treat yourself. Have a little luxury. Indulge yourself just a little bit, right? And there may be some humor to that. And, and listen, it's pleasurable to live in luxury, right? If you've ever uh, stayed in a luxurious hotel suite, right? You go back home to your old frumpy bed and you're like, man, I miss, I miss the pillow top. Right? I miss the, the comforter, the down comforter, the Egyptian cotton. Right? 
And there's something gratifying about self-indulgence or else we wouldn't do it, right? We like to self-indulge. But hear the word of James, the words of God. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In other words, you fed yourself and you made yourself a nice fat calf ready for a feast. And the day of slaughter is the day when God will come in judgment. That's what that's what James is pointing to, right? This is eschatological judgment. This is the judgment at the end of the ages. This is the day of the Lord, the day when Christ returns to pour out wrath for sin. So James is warning us that the rich who have used their wealth for themselves, for their own selfish, sinful ends, have prepared themselves to receive God's judgment. And they have done evil against the righteous person, right? Verse 6 tells us that. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, first there we have condemned, and that is a judicial term there. And, and again, we don't have the full context to it, but this might link back to what James has argued in James 2.6. James 2.6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Listen to this. Are not the rich ones, the ones, are not the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Right? Aren't the rich the ones who come and condemn you, who bring you before the judicial tribunal over every little matter? And guess what? They have the money to do that. They have the money to hire the good lawyers. And you're left with whoever might help you, right? Whoever's left, whoever can fit you in their busy schedule. Uh, understand that that's still true today, right? It's still true today. So it's this kind of injustice that sees a rich man drag the poor man into court, throw him in jail, get the judgment lien against them, put the shackles around them, uh, do whatever it takes. I don't care. They've been a nuisance to me. But James also uses the word murdered here. And we might ask the question, is this metaphorical murder or is this literal murder? And it could be either. How might the rich murder? Well, go back. They've been withholding the wages of their worker. The poor who need it. And cheating their workers, the rich may expose their workers to maladies, malnutrition, and untimely mortality. Right? Do you understand that? Do you get that? That that's a possibility? That they need that food to survive? They need good food to survive? And then when they don't have it, they get sick. And when they get sick, right, they, they have less ability to make for themselves what they need. And what happens? Malnutrition and death or maybe maybe it's literal murder right condemned and murdered there's a judicial action there maybe they go and speak against the 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 poor person the righteous poor person and condemn them to death for whatever crime they find fit uh, we think of ahab there right whose wife uh, takes the vineyard of neboath could be that could be something like that but more than that he says he does not resist you does the does the poor righteous person resist the rich unrighteous person no not really not not in earthly ways right because the poor are helpless in the face of the rich what recourse do the poor have uh, think about that this way, right? This is one of the po popular reasons for unions. Why are there unions? Because they say that they can help bargain 
right? They can they can create a power block to bargain with managers over payment, over wages, over benefits. Why why is that necessary? Because in a work relationship, the employer has all the power, right? You're beholden to them for the money, not they you. That's typical, right? And if uh, we have good managers, righteous people uh, who are over us, it may not be a problem. But as we see in society, where are the righteous? Where are those who seek to do good? The poor are helpless in the face of the rich. And the only resistance that the poor can offer, we've already seen it. What do they do? Cry out to God. Which granted, that is the best thing that you could do, right? So James here writes that announce the selfish, sinful, self-indulgent rich who have abused their place of prominence and power to exalt themselves, to tear down the poor. And he warns them that the coming day of slaughter will see them carried away like a fat calf to be cold. He warns them that the temporal treasures that they have hoarded, those things that are subject to corrosion, to moths, to rust, to, to thieves who break in and steal, that those things will be a witness against them on the day of the Lord. They have defrauded their workers. They have enlarged themselves and their end is judgment. For our part, we would do well to remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24. Matthew 19, 23 and 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, given our context in the West, we who in abundance, Jesus is talking to you. Jesus is speaking to you. Don't ignore it. Don't say that that's a message for somebody else. Now, Jesus is speaking to you. And I did not um, keep there what what it goes on to say when his disciples remark, well, who can be saved? Jesus responds with God, with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You may be comparatively poor in our culture, but you are comparatively rich in the world. You, Christian, have an obligation upon you to be generous with your wealth. You have an obligation to benefit others with what God has given you. You need to acknowledge that what you have is not yours. God has given it to you, and you need to be rich towards God. And what does that look like? What What should it look like? Well, you need to think of how you're going to honor God with your wealth. How are you going to use your wealth to further the expansion of his kingdom? How are you going to relieve the suffering of the poor? How are you going to help those who are hungry and thirsty and naked? Or are you going to store up for yourself treasures on on this earth? Are you going to enlarge your barns? Are you going to defraud your workers of their wages so that you can have more? Beloved, and here's, here's an immediate practical way to do that. Give to the relief of the poor in eastern Kentucky who have lost everything in these floods. Do it. I'm not telling you how much you should give. That's between you and God. 
We could go to uh, what Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows abundantly will reap abundantly. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So give cheerfully. But that's an immediate, practical way that you can put into application God's Word today. So do that. But what else? Well, do you tithe? Do you give to the furthering of God's kingdom? Do you support missionaries? Are you generous towards those who don't have? And listen, I understand that this is difficult because it's difficult for me. It's difficult because we live in a culture that is always telling us that we need more, right? That we need that. We need this. We need, need, need. But you need to honor God with your wealth. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. You need to love one another even as Christ Jesus has loved you. That's what you need. And so perhaps what you do is this afternoon you need to sit down with your spouse, with your friend, with your significant other, and you need to decide, you need to plan out, you need to figure out how are we going to honor God with our wealth? Figure out the outworking of this passage. Because brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are indeed in Christ, you cannot ignore the word of God. And if you do ignore God's word, if you do love and serve your wealth over the one who alone deserves your affections, understand that there is judgment waiting. You have set before you the truth of Scripture. The word has been sown. And some of you are good soil. And you'll find that this passage reaps a harvest, a bountiful harvest of good works. But some of you are thorny soil. And some of you will hear this passage and will go from this place and the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures of this world and the desires of this world will choke out what God has spoken. Christ Jesus is coming and he is coming back in judgment and he will bring God's wrath against all sin. And unless you turn to him in repentance and unless you look unto Christ Jesus, turn from your sin, selfishness, and self-indulgence, you will find yourself under God's judgment. You are preparing yourself for the day of slaughter, your own slaughter. And understand that you may be a Christian, you may get this wrong, and this is a matter for you to repent. right? This is a matter for you to go before God and seek His forgiveness. And if you don't, God will discipline you. He will take care of you. And you may get to heaven and survive only as through fire. Some of you, some of you hearing this, may profess Christ, but the truth is the way that you use your wealth, what you treasure, proves you don't believe in Christ. How many there are within our culture and within American Christianity that fall into that category? But as it is still today, as you yet draw breath, you are given time to repent, to seek God's forgiveness, to confess your sins and trust in Christ. Because Christ Jesus is coming to bring judgment against sin, but he is also coming to gather his people to himself. 
He bore the wrath of God, sin, uh, the wrath of God for sin, for his people's sin. All who trust in him will find that their sins have been paid in full by him on his cross. And if you believe in Christ Jesus, you will never be ashamed. So turn to Christ, trust in him, believe in God, and then treasure the heavenly things. Use your wealth righteously. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, how we need your grace, how we need your forgiveness. Lord God, we live in a culture that is obsessed with an abundance of possessions. We live in a culture that is obsessed with seeking a luxury and self-indulgence. And Father God, we confess, I confess, God, that we have sometimes been swept up in that but that we have run after it. Lord God, that we have sought it. And we have built for ourselves little treasuries here on earth. And we have filled them with things that are temporary, transitory, unreliable, things that will go as soon as they have come. Father, we have put our trust in such things. Forgive us. Oh Lord God, forgive us. And God, we pray that you would lead us to understand, lead us in wisdom, that we, would, that we would honor you with our use of our wealth. Father, that we would build up for ourselves treasures in heaven, that we would look and have a good foundation for the life that is to come. And Father, we pray for those, those who we know, those who are around us, those in our community here, Lord, that seek after earthly treasures and Lord that will be devastated on the day of judgment because they will stand in your presence and be cast into that place of hell and all that they have worked for all that they have sought after all that they thought they needed will be nothing more than an evidence against them it will be nothing more than fueled to the fires of hell. Oh God, have mercy and send your spirit among us. Lord God, save sinners and help us, Lord God, to be faithful to preach to sinners. Lord God, to show them what righteous use of wealth looks like. God have mercy, we pray. In the name of our blessed Lord Jesus, amen.